moment of silence to bask in the presence of the Father. Good morning. Um, my name's Kent uh, McKay. For those of you who don't know me, um, and we are talking this morning, as has been said, uh, about the mystic approach to God. Um, we say goodbye to our youth. They can't take it. Um, just to orient everybody a little more, um, this is one of six services we're doing. Uh, for those who don't know, if you're new, uh, based on an inventory, sort of a small quiz you can take. If you haven't taken it yet, they'll be available in the back. And you take answer, I think it's 13 questions, and it sort of orients you um, in uh, how you both approach God and how you conceptualize God. And um, if we can get it up on the screens, it would be useful. Thank you. Um, so uh, today we'll be in the bottom left quadrant. But it's important to know that that doesn't mean that, that we're not pigeonholing you. As Matt said last week, this is a, an area code. And we're all men of parts. You'll probably find that you are in multiple places on this grid. You don't score just in one area. It's just to help you think it through and understand how you both you conceptualize God and how you approach God. Last week, actually, someone came up to me and uh, they were concerned because they'd taken the quiz and they had no servant points. Right? And they're like, but we're supposed to be servants and what's wrong with me? Um, and uh, please don't read it that way. It doesn't mean uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean that you don't serve. It means that you don't feel yourself approaching God as you serve. And I'm getting a really good echo. Um, if you have a um, Matt referenced last week the, the love languages. Um, I think we're all familiar with the, you know, the multiple ways that we express love to one another. And it's important to know your love language so that you can. Uh, know how to communicate to others well, and also so you know your spouse's love language, you know how to communicate to them well. And it's just similar here, but the tragedy in the love language is, is when you can't hear someone because you don't understand their language, right? It's this tragic, isolating moment if someone tries to express love to you and you don't hear them, right? So it's really important to know the language so you can hear your spouse and other people. And I think that's analogous to this. Uh, there are people in the congregation who... Uh, do that, you know, they're almost all in that servant group, for example, and they serve God. They really feel the worship. They feel the presence of God when they serve, and they'll come to you and say, hey, do you want to help me wash the toilets out, right? And you're like, no, I'm good. Um, um, I'm going to go do something godly while you scrub toilets. And um, and you, that, that, that can be a really crushing, you know, I was trying to share something dear with you, and you didn't hear me, right? So for the for unity, for understanding our fellow men, for understanding other denominations, because you know we, we as a group kind of approach God differently than over time and place people have done, um, is really important to understand these and internalize it and feel it for yourself. All six of them. So that's what we're doing right now in this. And today, of course, we are talking about the mystic. Um, 
my, my path um, to here, I, I'm guessing, just, I don't know why Matt chose me to do this one, but, you know, um, he says that I have a mystic background, and he's right. I, when I was a child, when I first felt God, when I first understood that I wanted, you know, this closeness, um, it was what I wouldn't have called it a mystic experience at the time, but it was in the soul, it was in the gut, you know, that you, I felt God, and I wanted to maintain that, get to know that more. Um, over time, uh, it, it's, it's, there's some judgment in the church if you're not thinking, you know, if you're not studying. And some of that's very well grounded. I, I grew up in a, in a community that was largely what we would fall into the mystical category here. And there was a lot of oversight. There was some lax theology, you know. It was all about experience at times. And I've seen the, the abuses and the shortcomings of that. And so it's been very important to me as an adult to grow up and, I, you know, go to seminary, study a lot. Uh, really try to rigorously get the underpinnings of that. Um, so that, uh, you know, my, my Christian walk has been largely head, even though my native language would be probably mystic. Uh, I actually went to seminary because I'd come to the point where uh, I had just one tether left to, to the Bible, and it was John. John spoke to me. And John, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're historical descriptions. They're propositional stories sometimes. And John is just a memoir. It's just a dude who talked to me. He says, I touched him. I felt him. I, I knew him. And he's talking about how he knew Christ. And uh, so I wanted to read the Greek. I wanted to understand if he really meant that and if that's authentic. And, of course, when I went and studied, I, you know, I found out I could get over myself. And, you know, um, <laughs> I found out a lot more about uh, you know, Christianity than just my hang-ups. Um, but um, one thing I did find in seminary, I, I came to an epiphany when I studied Kierkegaard. He was a person who, with great intellectual rigor, pursued the mystic life, right? And there was a, a, there's a connection there so that we are all men of parts, and there are, there's ways to pursue uh, all of these. And I would encourage you to explore them all. With that being said, um, how many of you, um, when, when you heard mystic, kind of in your mind what you thought was, um, I don't know, incense, lotus position, basically pagan? Uh, okay, right. So we got some hands, and that's reasonable. Um, it's a, it's a common thing. Um, how many of you thought, yeah, that's one way to go, uh, if you turn off your head and your theology? You know, anybody? Is that any? Okay, we got a couple of them. And how many of you? It's, it's sort of like listening to music. You thought, well, of course you listen with your soul. What else are you going to do? What, what, what is there anybody who sort of just felt like this is a native thing? Okay, there's not many hands there, but there might be a few. Um, it is important to understand, to get us all on the same page with what mystic means, and it is quite simply the desire to touch the unknown, right? To touch the mystery. And when we say mystery here, I mean mystery and mystical come from the same Greek root, mysterion, and it's talking about mystery as in a thing that was not understood secret. But the authors of the Old the New Testament were speaking from a Hebrew perspective when they said mystery, they meant amok, the Hebrew concept, um, which is deep. Impenetrable, right? You should think of the ocean, and I don't mean sitting on the beach in a chair. I mean being chucked into the middle of the Pacific, right? Um, you're there in this vast horizon to horizon, powerful place where you can't survive on your own. It's deeper than you'll ever understand. You can't see through it. It is profound. That's the mystery. You don't know what's down there, right? Um, and um, the, uh, it, it's not CSI, it's not Sherlock Holmes, it's not like something in 45 minutes allowing for commercials to figure out, right? Uh, it's not something to be figured out, it's an understanding that there's things which we don't know. And the mystic path is to try to touch and know the 
the mystery, the unknown. Um, in the New Testament, the New Testament authors talked a lot about the mystery, and usually when they did uh, in Romans 6, knowing the hidden mysteries of God in Ephesians 3, the mysteries of Christ hidden in God for all ages. Uh, who are they talking about? They're talking about Christ. Frequently when they're talking about the mystery, they're talking about Christ specifically. God become man, right? And as an interesting point, does anybody know Christ only spoke about the mystery one time? He used that phrase one time. Does anybody know when it was? You can see a raise your hand. Ah, uh, it's a trivia question. Okay. Uh, it's uh, the parable of the sower. Um, in, it's recorded in all three synoptic gospels. And Christ said, to you it's been given the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. But for those who are outside, everything comes in parables. So that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and it would be forgiven them. And that's a troubling passage for a lot of us because it's just said God maybe doesn't want to forgive us. That sounds weird. Um, but he said this in the context of, he had just told the parable of the sower, which is a man went out and spread seed, uh, which we know is the word of God. He explains that's the word of God. And the seed can take root and grow into some prepared souls. Uh, where the soil is ready, but in souls where it's rocky or where there's birds or where it's hot, the, the, the seed can't take root. Uh, and they said, well, why are you talking about us in parables? And Jesus said, funny you should ask. I just told that parable about telling parables, right? So he means at least three things when he tells them these parables. And the first is he's explaining why he uses parables. Uh, Rabbi Yoshi once uh, explained that a parable is a basket with handles. Um, the idea being there's important, valuable fruit, there's seed, there's, there's sustenance in there, but you don't need it all right now. You can't use it all right now. So the parable allows you to carry the truth around until the day you're ready to grab it, right? You can dig around in there and get what you need out of it. It's a story that lets you carry the uh, meaning with you. And uh, so he's told a parable about telling parables. Well, the seeds can't always take root, so you need to tell it to them in a way that they can carry it with them. He's also referencing in this uh, Isaiah. He's telling the apostles about the job they're about to be embarked on. When this phrase, hearing you may hear and understand, uh, seeing you might see and not perceive, that was first said to Isaiah in the Old Testament. Right? God was saying to Isaiah, man, do I have a miserable job for you? Um, I'm going to send you out to tell people something that no one's going to listen to, and you've got to keep doing it. Right? And you've got to tell them over and over, and they're not going to listen, and you get to keep doing it. That's your job. And, but he tells them that because it's a seed that will take root, and he says that uh, these people will be taken into captivity, um, and a remnant will grow out of it, and a new Jerusalem will be built. And out of that, God's purpose will be fulfilled. And the disciples are standing at the moment of that fulfillment when they hear this parable, right? This fruit is happening. Christ has just been born in this new, the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise is happening as they speak. And Christ is saying, that seed that was planted is going to grow. And guess what? You have the same job as Isaiah. You're going to keep spreading the seed, and it will grow over time into the kingdom, right? So that's the second thing he's telling them with this. And that implies there is a time and a place where you should hear. He doesn't want you to accept and repent when you just have propositional description. He wants you to repent and hear the word and the word done when, when your soul is ready for the word to grow down deep. And where the implication here is it's when you know the mystery, right? Because the third part of this that's dead, that Christ definitely means is the ocean, right? This is rendered, this passage is rendered a little differently in Luke. And in Luke it says, uh, to you it has been granted to know the mystery. The others are told in parables. Does he say it's been granted to you to understand what I just said? He did not. Did he say, 
to you it's been granted the description or the solution. No, he's been granted to know the mystery. Who's the mystery when the New Testament authors write about it? Christ. To you it's been granted to walk around with me. You've been chucked into the ocean, right? Everybody else is inland. They haven't been hanging out with me. They don't know me. And I mean know in the experiential sense, right? So all these people that are inland, I tell them in clever stories that will make them want to see the ocean. I tell them in clever stories so that when they see the ocean, they'll recognize it, right? That's the purpose of the parable. And you guys are granted to know the mystery. So I don't have to talk to you in parables. You know me. That's the basic of, basis of, of mystic understanding, and that's you know what we know by uh, what John talks about is uh, the, the desire to know the mystery, not understand it necessarily. Um, th- this this thing of being chucked into the ocean came very clearly home to me, um, knowing experientially something that you can never know through teaching. One day when Melissa and I were hitchhiking around Scotland, because that's what you do when you're college student. Um, we hitchhiked around Scotland, we put on rubber boots in the middle of winter, and walked out into the North Sea in the dead of night, because that's cool. And uh, it's a long, slow shell, so we knew had a long way to walk, but we got about what felt like three miles, it was probably a couple hundred feet, um, out into the water. And first of all, it's winter in Scotland, so there's no stars, it's totally over, overcast, it's freezing water. And we were just surrounded. The same sensation was coming from every direction, right? Same sounds every direction. Can't see a thing. The same temperature every direction. Just freezing. We had no idea what might be in the water in any direction. Now, rationally, we knew we were shin deep in the ocean. Nothing was going to happen. But I instantly understood why all the people in old maps wrote, here there be dragons, right? (laughs) There could have been anything out there. And the only assurance we had of... You know, is the hand you're holding next to you, knowing a person in that moment, right? And no amount of understanding about the ocean prepared me for the experience of being engulfed in it, right? It's a fearful thing to be in the hands of the living God, they tell us in Hebrews. It's a fearful thing to be chucked into the ocean and recognize your smallness in it. And everything you knew is probably not relevant. I knew about salt water, it didn't matter, you know. Um, um, I mentioned Kierkegaard earlier, and um, to, to point out that the mystic is not the opposite of head. And one of the things that we can do, um, particularly Kierkegaard, is um, he, treat, he, he rationally understands the unknown. Like, that is unknown, but we still have to interact with it rationally, right? We don't throw our heads away. Uh, in math, we do that with, with the concept of I, the square root of negative one. Math can't cope with that value. But we just put a placeholder in place and we interact with it as well as we can with our rational selves and with our souls until we can understand it. Matt often has said that Christianity is not uh, often. He said it once and I wrote it down probably. Um, uh, uh, Matt said that Christianity is not irrational, it's transrational, right? I can't really explain to you, I can't convince you about all the things of God, but I can show you their reasonableness, right? So you know the mystery. You can present the mystery to someone. You can talk about your experience. You can't explain it all because it is the mystery. Um, John was the first to do this uh, when he talked about um, what was from the beginning, what we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that was his defense for what he was doing. He wasn't explaining anything. He was telling you who he knew. 
But as he did that, uh, he was actually echoing um, much older attempts at experience in, in the scripture. I'm going to take you through the story of Elijah. Um, Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who knew God. He talked to God. He served God. There's this heroic moment where he's standing on Mount Carmel over the Mediterranean Sea, and he challenges people who don't believe in God, and fire comes from heaven and proves the real God is real. And the result of that was that they slew all these people that had been taking Israel away from God, and it should have been this moment of triumph. And what happened was the queen swore out a death warrant on him, right? And he had to run for his life. Nothing good came out of it, right? And he, he, on one day's food, he runs for 40 days. Uh, he flees from his country, presumably under the cover of night, through valleys, trying to stay hidden, through his country, south through another country, south through a wilderness, south into the desert, just trying to save his own life. And as he's running, when he runs through the wilderness, that's the same wilderness that David had run through, fearing for his own life years before. Um, and when David was fleeing for his life in that wilderness, he wrote the psalm, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 13, 1 and 2. Is he asking in that, O Lord, explain to me what's happening? No. Where are you? Right? Elijah just thought he knew God, and it didn't work. He had to run for his life. David, same thing. He, he thought he was serving God. Running for his life, God, where are you? David wrote the same psalm in the same wilderness that Christ quoted from the cross, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why am I alone? I want to, I want to know you. And as Elijah fled, it's interesting that he fled to the same desert, the same spot where Moses was said to have met God so intimately it was as though they were face to face because he wants to have that experience. The experience in the north where he thought he was doing right and calling down fire from heaven didn't work. So he flees. He's exhausted. He's alone. His, his life, is, his work is, has no efficacy. He's lost it all. And he wants to go where God was when Moses met him. So he runs to the desert, to the mountain where he goes, Moses met God. And we find him as the, in a, as the story persists. He's sitting in a, in a cave, just staring out at the wilderness. He's exhausted. He's lost. He's alone. He's stripped of purpose. One of the ancient mystics of the church, Robert Clairvaux, not ancient, 1100s, um, called this the long, dark night of the senses. Like, there's nothing. That's what I experienced in the North Sea. There's nothing the senses can help you with. You're just numb, which leads to the dark night of the soul in which you can rediscover God because you're stripped away, right? Um, so we find him stripped away, sitting there in the, Bernard, uh, in the mouth of the cave. And we don't know how long he was there. The, the passage tells us that... Uh, as he sat there, God told him to go outside the cave and he'll meet him. God recognizes his loneliness. Um, Elijah, who knew God, heard God speak to him, tell him to go outside the cave to meet him because it wasn't good enough to communicate, to get letters. He needed to know him, right? So he goes outside the cave to see where God is, as he instructed. And God's a great and powerful wind tear through the mountains and broke the pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. This is an Old Testament prophet. He's grown up understanding that the great flood destroyed the world, right? That fire and brimstone came down on God's enemies. He had just seen fire come down from heaven. Uh, that God spoke to Job in his moment of loneliness out of the tornado, right? All these present, these manifestations of God, these great and mighty destructive um, natural events is what Elijah knew and counted on. And God wasn't there. Right? It's easy to think that happened in 10 minutes because it takes one minute to read it. Hurricanes don't happen in 10 minutes, right? 
earthquakes, wildfires. You can imagine that Elijah sat there days, a day, a week, a month. We don't know. Just watching nature fall apart, just entropy. Nothing left. God was nowhere. The world was just falling apart. That's where he felt. And then the numbness that came afterwards. We're told there was nothing, all that was gone. The sound of the thin silence is where he found God. The Hebrew, I think I just lost my mic. The Hebrew word voice is the same. It's the same word. So the, the, the voice of the thin silence. And have you probably been there in your life where you're stripped away? There's nothing left. It's all gone wrong, and you're just sitting in the numbness. And in the silence, when there's no more artifice, there's no more nothing of you left, that's when you can hear through the thin veils where God is. And that's what the mystics often seek, is to produce that moment, to get close to God again. And that's certainly what Elijah was doing here, is to recreate that so that he could, like Moses, meet God face to face. And in that moment of stillness, um, he saw God. We're told in Psalm, be still and know that I am God. The stillness there, the word is to uh, stop striving. It is to cease striving. It's to go limp. But it also is rendered to sink, which is what happens when you cease striving in the middle of the ocean and you just sink into the unknown. And that's the image I'd like you to carry with you. That's the mystic moment of you're stripped away and you sink into the, to the mystery. Um, so, but where's our faith in the middle of that, right? Uh, some of you, the ones who raised your hand and said it was pagan, you know, um, um, you're thinking, that's, that's fine, but, you know, sinking into the ocean and just there's nothing left and my mind's turned off and it's all emotion, where's the, the theology in that, right? Um, that's a fair question. I would like to uh, give you this quote from Callistus Ware. He's a, um, an Orthodox priest in England. Uh, he's also a lecturer at Oxford. Faith is not the supposition that something might be true, but the assurance that someone is there. When I was in the North Sea, the assurance that Moses was there was the only thing that kept me from like, losing track of which way I'd walked from, right? Um, uh, Francis Schaeffer, the Swiss theologian, uh, excellent uh, thinker, has a story he told that when he learned to understand faith, was when he, he was in Switzerland, so they lived in the Alps, and he was lost out on a walk with his father in thick fog. And he heard the voice of his father as he was panicking, saying, just jump down. Now, you and I know that meant his father was standing right here and could see his son, but his son had no idea. He was lost. And he just had to know that it wasn't any, any sensory input. It wasn't anything he knew about in life. It was just faith that he trusted his father that allowed him to come to safety. Faith isn't the supposition that something might be true. It's the assurance that someone is there. Um, Barth talks about that. Karl Barth, another Swiss theologian upon whom probably more of your theology than you know rests on the things he wrote. Um, and Karl Barth talks about theology, rigorous theology, being searching, moving blindly through the unknown until you find a light switch and turn it on and you understand a little more and you dig through the unknown and turn and as you're doing that, building theology for yourself, because we all do that. Um, if you're paying attention, you'll notice that the walls never go around. You're never defining something small that you can get your hands around and understand. As you see these inputs and outputs, what you're understanding is the limits and the ways in which you can understand God. Right? 
The walls will always close in and you'll find your limits. And your systematic theology is a systematic description of your limitations. And the mystery is outside that. And what you're seeking to do is know the mystery more. Um, again, Colossus Ware renders that much more eloquently as we see that it's not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. Thank you. I didn't say it, but I say it. I repeat it all the time. We see that it's not the task of Christianity to provide easy answers to every question, but, but to make us progressively aware of a mystery. God is not so much the object of our knowledge as the cause of our wonder. Um, this does feel foreign to us, right? We want to succeed in our Christian walk. We want to achieve something. And you don't achieve. You just sit and know, right? Um, it's been ever-present through uh, throughout the church, and it's pre present in our practices. And so if we feel like it's foreign, we should uh, examine Christian faith. Uh, obviously, the Trinity is a good place to start. Uh, the uh, theological importance of the doctrine of the Trinity is that you cannot create God in your own image if you bear in mind that He's three persons in one person, right? He's always greater than you. Uh, it's not something that you can put in your own mind and reduce him to a person, you know, uh, that, that you can interact with on human terms, necessarily. But he is also eminently available to you. Uh, which is, of course, the Incarnation. That's the whole story of the Incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of God the Father, in human terms, right? Uh, this guy was both divine and mortal at the same time. That's mysterious. Uh, we're not meant to understand it. We are meant to get to know him. And that's the, the mystic past. Um, we celebrate that incarnation in communion, right? Uh, as we have these physical elements, bread and, and juice, in which we feel and represent the presence of, of what has happened where the, the divine came into the flesh, and we celebrate it and recognize the part that it played in our lives over and over again. And when we're asked to I think Paul in Corinthians said, try yourself and to make sure you're worthy before you go to communion. If you've ever thought to yourself, yeah, I've had a good week, I'm worthy. Um, you're probably not thinking about it right. Um, <laughs> you should consider that and recognize that this is the immortal mystery. And you only have any access to God because He chose to become incarnate as symbolized in the communion and bring himself to your presence and make himself the mystery available to you. And we kid ourselves that we understand him all the time. We don't even understand our spouse, right? My, I was out with my kids in Washington yesterday, and the number of things they did that I don't understand was, you know, large. Um, um, and, but we, you know, we got communion tied up in a bow, right? That makes sense. Uh, it's been this divisive one of the most divisive things in Christendom is how we celebrate communion because we're focused on how to do it and how it works instead of knowing the man behind it, knowing the God behind it. The pursuit of the mysterious. Um, even the incense. We have incense on the table. Incense has smoke. The original, um, it says in the Old Testament we, we burn sacrifices so that a, as a pleasing aroma to God, nothing sounds more pagan. God doesn't have a nose, right? But we're happy to believe that God has ears. We yabber at him all the time. Um, and it's easy to lose track of his massive mysteriousness. Uh, 
That is not easy to do when you're cast into the middle of the ocean, which is why it's so important to find the moments and the means to strip yourself away and sit in His presence. Um, I had the opportunity to do this. Um, I was awake at 2.30 in the morning for no good reason. Um, I went ahead and put the dogs out because if I sit still, they take that as a cue that you know, I'm available to them. Um, so, and then I sat still on our steps in the middle of the house at 2.30 in the morning for a while and experienced the presence of God uh, with no agenda. And I would encourage you all to do that. Uh, we're actually going to... Uh, um, I could talk you through, actually. Um, we know it's a fearful thing to be in the hands of the living God, but we need to re-experience it. We know that it's always been uh, part of the church experience, but we forget um, the things that have been developed for over hundreds and thousands of years that come down to us, and, and we leave them aside in favor of the things we're busy with. Um, <laughs> John uh, started this, what we're calling mystic understanding of Christ, expressing it to the others. Um, the mystic fathers in the third century um, went out into the desert to re-experience what John described, what Elijah had gone through. And I will take a moment over there and say, uh, when you think about mysticism, don't confuse it with asceticism. Uh, asceticism is denial of self. Mysticism is pursuit of God, of the, of the mystery. And you can absolutely uh, pursue some ascetic practices such as fasting, fasting, you suppress the flesh. But I will say, if you ever find that you're pursuing the practices instead of pursuing the mystery, you're off base. And um, don't let them become the objectives, which, of course, some of our church fathers did, but they did it in honest pursuit of, of God, of the mystery. Um, it, it, that was in Egypt in the 4th century, in the, the 5th and 6th century in, in Turkey, um, uh, 3rd century, in the 4th century in Turkey, that they, they really developed an understanding of the Holy Spirit, which we still benefit from today. Um, Matt talked about the monks, uh, uh, I guess Augustine and Ambrose in the 5th and 6th centuries, and their disciples in the, into the 6th century really developed this idea of praying the Scriptures, uh, knowing the Scripture, and the Scripture, seeing the Scripture as a locale, a spiritual encounter, not just a list of propositions or the history of God revealed in man, to mankind. It's both. But it's also a location of spiritual encounter. Um, Ambrose and Augustine and their followers uh, developed this idea of, of praying Scripture. It grew, uh, I have in, in the... In France, the ancient Bernard of Clairvaux in the 1100s uh, kind of built that into what we call the Lectio Divina today, divine reading, um, because they spoke Latin, Lectio Divina. Um, in the 1500s, John of the Cross, or Juan de Cruz, I guess, um, in Spain, uh, codified that and taught everyone how to pray the Scriptures. And this long legacy of people across countries and places and languages has developed for us an understanding of how to approach the mystery through the Scriptures. And I could, it even goes on today. Uh, in Kentucky in the 1960s, Thomas Merton was a very famous uh, mystic. Uh, he's alive today, or was alive very recently. Um, and even the, what grows out of the quietness of prayer, uh, you guys have probably heard what's going on at Asbury, right? Which is the first place, uh, my first seminary we used to live right there. And um, that grew out of the same thing that happened in the 1700s. Uh, just before the the Great Awakening, the, the Moravians had a, a, a prayer meeting, and the pastor offered everybody, let's just stay for an hour after and, and pray about what we just, you know, stand, stay in stillness before God. And that was in May, and it kept going through to August. And in August, they say the Spirit fell. They revolutionized world missions and kicked, were key in kicking off the Great Awakening. 
because they were still before God. So what happened in Asbury, whatever was going on there started with students sitting still before God. Um, Christ did this constantly. He would get away and pray. And he would get away to know God, right? Um, the night before he chose all his disciples, he stayed up all night in prayer. And I submit to you, he wasn't in concentrated pros and cons of Andrew versus Matt Matthias, you know. He was being still with God so that being so aware of God, you just naturally act in his paths after. All your current concerns are stripped away. And I could t- we could talk about this a lot longer. I could talk a lot longer. And I will say, <laughs> what I'm doing right now, this is not what prayer should be, right? You don't jabber for 45 minutes at people, God, and call it a prayer. It's, you listen, right? It's time to convert converses. Um, if you guys didn't get one of these when you came in because we were out, um, they've photocopied some more, and you can get it in the back one as you leave. I hope you um, also will get one of these, which describes the Lectio Divina, which is divine reading. And I want to walk you, instead of describing this further, I just want to walk you guys through it together this morning. So I'm going to start by just reading this to you, the description. Um, and then we will do it together in silence. There will be a lot of silence. After which, um, you'll be prepared for doing it yourself as time goes by. So, Lectio Divina is an ancient approach to Scripture that was widely practiced in the church. It involves very slow reading or listening to the Word, married to a form of contemplative prayer that together opens the reader to the presence of God. It has four movements. First, the reader or the listener, same person, turns to a selected passage of Scripture with a sense of humility and awe, listening for the whisper of God spoken personally instantly to the reader. The key to this movement is allowing the Word to be alive for this moment in this day. This is the Lectio, the reading and listening phase. Next, the reader begins to ponder all the implications of Scripture as it relates to the personal Word from God. This involves allowing the Scripture to interact with the reader's feelings and thoughts, and you'll be reading Scripture again as you do this. You read it four times. Um, hopes and concerns. Time is taken to repeat the fr- afresh the Word from God, meditating on the implications for life. This is called the meditation. Next, the reader moves on to a form of prayer. And this is more dialogue than monologue. Begin loving, intimate conversation with the Father. The goal is to embrace the Word in the deepest place and within the heart, allowing it to bring change to the true self. And this is called the oratio, the prayer. And finally, the fourth time through, the reader rests before God. Speaks little, listens much. In communication between the reader and the Father. Willingness to surrender to the message of the Word. And I brought it to peace. His name is Contemplatio. So, I would say two things about this in addition. One is, when you do this, because you're going to do it this week. This week is Fat Tuesday, but we're not going to go Mardi Gras. We're going to take time alone to do this. A couple times. I would say three times this week. That's your, that's your task. Um, first of all, find a dedicated space. My wife, when she did it, would actually go into the closet, right? Just shut the door. Uh, you can do it in the bathroom. It doesn't really matter as long as you're alone and, and you have some guarantee of silence. Um, I would also choose a passage, choose a place, and make it sacred ahead of time. Sacred means set apart for God, right, for this purpose. Second is um, choose a passage. Don't just pick your favorite pass, uh, little Bible scriptures that you've memorized. Pick a passage and just move through it in small chunks day by day. It could be Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, it could be uh, uh, John's uh, Christ's final speech to his disciples in John 15 to 17. Uh, could be Philippians. That's a great book, right? Um, 
pick a larger section and just go through it little section at a time so that it's pre-decided and you're not pushing your own agenda to God, right? You're listening. So you find a place, you find a passage, and you go through these steps. And now, when you're on your own, you will be reading out loud so that your ears hear your mouth, right? Today, I'm going to read for us. And instead of you all going off into a closet somewhere, we'll just sort of bow our heads and do it together, okay? So we're going to do this now. If you could assume an attitude that separates you from those around you. As I read this the first time, I'm going to read Psalm 1, 1 through 3. As I read through this the first time, what word or phrase stands out to you as God's word to you? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in his season. His leaf also will not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. Amen. Let's sign As I read this again, ask yourself what feelings arise within you as you read the text. What implications does it hold for your life? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also will not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. As I read this a third time, pray it in your mind to God. The parts that stand out to you. What is God asking of you relative to this text? Listen to him. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also will not wither. Whatever he does will prosper. Listen to God. last time as I read it, bask in the moment, be still before the text. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word was rendered in text for us. And we experience his peace. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also will not wither, and whatever he does will prosper.
the word of the Lord. So this Lectio Divina is an ancient approach to Scripture that reminds us that Scripture is a place of spiritual encounter with God, a gift to us. Experience him. They bring forth the um, the truth that sometimes we leave behind in Christian walk. Um, that Christianity admits and lives in the reality that uh, all reality is not physical. Uh, that God is both imminent, all powerful, both and transcendent, and yet available to us through His mystery. The goal of Bible study is not just learning the Bible, but developing a system. It's not developing systems of thought. It's educating the believer in growth and godliness. And that education isn't just academic learning. It's knowledge. It's experiential knowledge of God. And you've got to be with Him enough to experience Him to have that education. Let me give you a couple of cautions. I do ask you to do this this week at least three times. Pick three days and do it. Uh, when you meditate on Christ, you're not emptying your mind. There's a lot of advice out there on meditation, which is all about reaching the unknown and mindfulness, and there's probably some truth in a lot of it. But what you're doing is focusing on Christ, right? Everything should fall away, definitely yourself, but Him. Uh, if any of you golf, you absolutely know there's a moment in the swing where you're not concentrated, you're not focusing, you're try- not trying to make it happen. But you have nothing in mind but the target, and you swing to it, right? It's that focus. There's nothing but that in your mind that's essential. Uh, and also, as you meditate, you'll probably find yourself thinking about tomorrow's work and yesterday's menu and the TV show you saw, and that's normal. You're not unrighteous at that point. But that's just the layers of yourself that haven't fallen away yet, right? When it happens, let it go and refocus on Christ. Uh as you, um, as you pursue God, you may have lots of thoughts, um, which may or may not be from God. Try the fruit. Try them against Scripture. Right? Don't necessarily try them against the theology you've learned in Sunday school. Rethink it through. Right? If God's speaking to you, listen. But do make sure to try the fruit. Um, and the greatest danger that I would warn you against is the danger of disingenuousness. In C.S. Lewis's great book, Till We Have Faces, the linchpin of his book is how can we meet God face to face until we've stripped away everything off our faces, right? The unmitigated gall of us demanding that God reveal himself to us, but we keep ourselves hidden and protected? Don't do that. Elijah was able to hear the thin Sound God's voice and the thin, experience God in the thin sound of the silence because he was stripped away and numb of all his pretense and all his self-importance, right? And that's where we need to be. Um, the same when we prepare ourselves for communion, which we will do shortly. Um, you're naked before God. You're examining yourself and recognizing your place in the vast ocean, right? 
it's not about me and you when we go to communion and when we sit before God in meditation. It's, it's about him. Uh, and the mystical practices help us strip away that artifice nakedly so we can be before him. So I'm going to pray, and then Matt will come up and lead us uh, in communion. Father God, I pray that in this week as we go out and uh, seek your face, seek to know you more from our gut and our heart and the true experience, I pray that everyone here will have that moment that maybe leaves them wanting more in this week. Through this season, I just pray that it would affect our lives and we could redirect our energies through a new focus on you, Lord. Thank you for bringing these people together in this building at this time in this city. And I pray that you would move mightily through us. I pray that we would take the time alone to know you so that we'll be prepared for the moves you ask by us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.